0: So, why am I a creationist? Well, I want to begin, first of all, by thinking about the theory of evolution. Uh, We've already heard this morning that evolution is one of the great challenges that we face as Christians today. The theory of evolution, essentially, uh, in its broadest uh, terms, says that life arose on the earth by solely natural processes perhaps four billion years ago when spontaneously non-living chemicals came together to assemble themselves into the first spark of life and then by wholly natural processes processes of mutation and selection operating over time scales of hundreds of millions of years all of the diversity of life that we see around us today has come into existence and we can Picture this uh, view of evolution as a single evolutionary tree. It's the great iconic image that Darwin um, popularised in The Origin of Species. The only illustration he had in his book was this idea of an evolutionary tree of life where every species that has ever lived is one of the twigs or branches on this single evolutionary tree. So the question that we need to address um, when we consider evolution is not do living things change over time because they clearly do we can see changes in living things even uh, within our own lifetimes rather evolution um, concerns this big story this grand narrative about the universal common descent of all life on earth so that's what I mean when I talk about the theory of evolution today and I think we should acknowledge that the theory of evolution seems compelling to many intelligent and thinking people. I think we make a mistake if we dismiss the theory of evolution lightly or if uh, we think that to believe in the theory of evolution means that um, someone is silly or stupid. We mustn't dismiss lightly the evidence that is proposed in favour of the theory of evolution. And any good biology textbook will present that evidence to you. It comes from many different uh, disciplines and sub-disciplines of science. Uh, People will point to the existence, for example, of intermediate forms in the fossil record, homology, patterns of similarity among living things, evidence from mutation and selection, mechanisms of evolutionary change... Biogeography, the distribution of organisms on the surface of the earth, the order of the fossils that we see in the fossil record and so on. Many other things too. And many people will argue that all of this evidence converges on this single evolutionary explanation, the universal common descent of all life. So in this sense, evolution seems to be a simple, elegant idea that appears to be supported by a great range of data from many different disciplines. Well, of course, having said that, that raises the question, doesn't it, so why am I a creationist? I want to begin with this one. Simple, compelling theories often turn out to be wrong. And this is sometimes difficult for people, perhaps, who are not immersed in the history or the philosophy of science to understand. The fact that a theory appears to be compelling and supported by a large range of data does not mean that that theory is true. In fact, the history of science is littered with the remains of simple, elegant ideas that appeared to be supported by the data that turned out to be wrong and were ultimately replaced by other ideas. Let me give you a couple of examples. Firstly, geocentrism. Now geocentrism is the idea that the Earth is fixed at the centre of our solar system and that all of the other planets, moons, the sun and other bodies in our solar system essentially revolve around the fixed Earth. Now this scientific idea is perhaps, at least in terms of longevity, the most successful scientific idea of all time. It was widely held by virtually every intelligent thinking person in the west for perhaps 1,500 years. And for good reason, because the evidence seemed to support it. You only had to go out and use the evidence of your own senses. Look at the motions of the heavens and you could see that the the earth was fixed and that the other bodies moved around the earth. And in fact, this was why it took such a long time perhaps 150 years after people were beginning to propose alternative views of the solar system, Copernicus and Galileo and so on, proposing sun-centered views of the solar system. It took a long time for geocentrism to be replaced, displaced in people's minds because the evidence seemed strongly to support it. But of course, we know that geocentrism is incorrect today. Another idea, this one may seem very... Uh, strange to our uh, modern way of thinking Uh, it concerns an idea called preformism preformism uh, is an idea about the development of the embryo the human embryo and the idea was that the embryo was in effect a kind of miniature adult that simply unfolded a bit like an umbrella sort of opening up during during development And again, this was a very popular idea. This was widely held by most naturalists in in the West. Because the only alternative explanation was that there was some kind of mystical organising force that that we couldn't understand that assembled the embryo within the body of the mother. And so most people dismissed that because there was no mechanism for it. And they believed that, in fact, this sort of miniature adult was front-loaded into either the sperm or the egg. There were debates about whether this miniature adult resided in the sperm or the egg. And people claimed that they had microscopic evidence for, you know, for one of these ideas or the other. Um, and people mostly rejected the idea that the human embryo was assembled in the body of the mother, which, of course, we now know is is actually the case. The people who believed in this organising principle were correct, and the preformists were wrong. And so let's look at some of the evidence, these evolutionary evidences. These are standard evidences that we find in any, any major biology textbook. And I want to show you how the evidence can appear very compelling, and yet when we look at them more closely, perhaps there's a different way to look at the evidence. So let's think, first of all, about homology. The similarities that biologists observe between different species which, according to evolution, have been inherited from a common ancestor. Take, for example, the arrangement of the vertebrate forelimb. Think about your own arm for a moment. You have one bone in the upper arm. You have two bones in the lower arm. Then you have a cluster of bones that make up the wrist and the hand. And then you have the bones of the five fingers the five digits we call this the pentadactyl plan and when you look across the vertebrates you find that uh, other vertebrates share this pattern of bones but it's modified in different ways for different purposes so in the whale the same pattern of bones is modified into a flipper for swimming in the bat it's modified into a wing for flying and so on. Now this has been known for a very long time But Darwin came up with an explanation. In 1859, Darwin said the reason that all of these vertebrates share this pattern of bones is because they inherited it from a common ancestor. It's evidence for common evolutionary descent. And what's more, this argument is... Even more compelling in the sense that it's used to construct evolutionary trees. It seems to make sense of the the large-scale patterns we see in nature. So here we have a kind of simple evolutionary tree, an evolutionary branching diagram called a cladogram. And uh, we have a number of organisms here. And here's how evolutionists believe that these groups are related to one another. So the wolf is unique among these organisms, in that it alone possesses hair. None of the other organisms here possess hair. However, you can put the turtle and the wolf together into a group because both of those organisms, the turtle and the wolf, are what we call amniotes. They have the amniotic egg arrangement. Then you can make a still more inclusive group with the salamander, because the salamander, the turtle and the wolf are all tetrapods. They all have four legs. Then you can make a yet more inclusive group with the trout, a fish, because that organism and all of the others have jaws. Then you can make a still more inclusive group with the lamprey, which is a jawless fish, because the lamprey, the trout, the salamander, the turtle and the wolf are all animals that possess a backbone they're vertebrates and so on so you can see that by using this pattern of similarities you can construct a series of groups nested within bigger groups within bigger groups a bit like those Russian dolls right groups nested within other groups and the evolutionary scientist looks at this and says well this What's the explanation for this? Why are we able to group organisms in this way? It's because of that branching pattern of evolution through time. At some point in history, organisms developed a backbone. All of the ancestors of that organism inherited that characteristic. Then, at some further point, jaws developed, and all of the ancestors of that, uh, sorry, all of the descendants of that group then. Uh, uh, possess jaws and so on so this explains the pattern of similarities that we see it seems a very compelling argument I I think that looks like a compelling uh, piece of evidence but there's more to be said on this subject let's look at one of the problems with this argument It turns out that when we seek to draw these evolutionary branching diagrams based on shared similarities, you can draw more than one possible evolutionary tree. In fact, I've I've done this uh, as part of my postgraduate studies, where I've used the same computer programs that are used to construct these cladograms. If you have a group of organisms, you will find that it will draw you many different evolutionary trees and you then have to make further assumptions about which evolutionary tree is the correct one. Let me give you an example why why this is the case. We have these three organisms here, megabats, they're fruit bats, the large bats you find in South America. We have the microbats which are the bats that we're more familiar with here in, in the UK and we have the primates and The question an evolutionary biologist asks is how are these three groups of organisms related to one another? Now most evolutionists believe that the tree that you can see here on the left is the the correct evolutionary tree for these organisms. The megabats and the microbats are more closely related to one another than either is to the primates and you can understand why. Because the megabats and the microbats share a very obvious similarity in common. The bat-like wing, which is a very distinctive arrangement of bones uh, that the bat has. The way that the the, the bones are patterned into the wing. And so the argument is that these organisms share that similarity because they diverge from a common ancestor that evolved the bat-like wing um, at some point Um, after they branched off from the primates. However, there's a problem with this evolutionary tree because there are other similarities that we also have to take into account. And one of the other similarities we need to think about is that megabats have a very distinctive pattern of nerves that runs from the eye to the midbrain. It's highly complex and very distinctive. And interestingly, they do not share this with the microbats. The microbats don't have this particular neural network. But there is another group of organisms that does have this particular pattern of nerves, and that's the primates. So, if this evolutionary tree on the left is correct, what it means is that that highly complex and very distinctive pattern of nerves must have arisen twice independently in the microbats from the time it was acquired by the primates. So some evolutionary biologists, a minority, but some evolutionary biologists have argued that actually this evolutionary tree is incorrect. This is wrong. And they argue that actually the pattern of evolutionary relationships is this one that you see on the right where the megabats and the primates are actually more closely related to one another than they are to the microbats. In other words, the megabats are really a kind of flying primate. Now, this solves the problem, doesn't it? Because now the neural pathway only has to evolve once. So we've solved the problem. Or have we? Because now, if this evolutionary tree is correct, can you see that we've created another problem? which is that the bat-like wing now has to evolve independently twice. And what you find is that whichever evolutionary tree you draw, there are always, always similarities that contradict the evolutionary tree. That should at least raise the question in our minds, are we, when we draw these evolutionary trees, imposing a pattern on nature that really isn't there? Are we, see, are we actually seeing a pattern where actually a different kind of pattern would explain the data better? That's homology. Let me give you another example of an evolutionary argument that has been used. It concerns the order in which we find the fossils in the fossil record. For a very long time, geologists have known that there is an orderly succession in terms of the first appearance of fossil groups and uh, one of the classic examples is uh, the case of the vertebrates. So what you see here is a diagram that shows the different geological layers on the left, the oldest are at the bottom, the youngest at the top, and here we have the different vertebrate groups um, and the black lines represent where those groups are found in the fossil record and you'll notice that there is an order of appearance. The jawless fishes appear first, they're followed by the jawed fishes and then the amphibians then the reptiles and the mammals and and the birds and ever since the time of Charles Darwin this order this sequence of first appearances has been interpreted as evidence for evolutionary theory because this order of appearances coincides with it agrees with the order that we would predict these organisms should have appeared in evolutionary history based on their shared similarities. Remember the diagram I showed you earlier? The, The branching diagram, which you can predict then the order in which those groups branch from one another based on their morphology, their shared similarities. And when we compare that to the order they actually appear in the fossil record, the two patterns match. That seems a kind of slam dunk for evolution, doesn't it? Two independent sets of data that agree with one another and are explained by evolution. Seems a compelling argument. Well, again, there's more to this than meets the eye. The correspondence between the order of branching predicted by morphology and the order in which groups actually appear in the fossil record is not as strong as it first appears. Uh, Dr. Kurt Wise is a paleontologist. He studied at Harvard under a world-famous evolutionary biologist called Stephen Jay Gould. Um, But Kurt is a creationist. He's a a young-age biblical creationist. And some years ago, Kurt did a very interesting study. He constructed branching evolutionary diagrams, not just for the vertebrates, not one example, but for many different groups in fact he constructed evolutionary diagrams for all of the kingdoms and phyla and classes of organisms and then he used a statistical method to compare the order in which organisms are predicted to have appeared from the branching diagrams with the actual order in which those groups appeared in the fossil record and he did this for 144 examples. Okay, so not just one, the vertebrates, but now we've expanded our data set to 144 examples. How well does evolution match up? Well he found that in only five of 144 examples was there any statistically significant correlation between the predicted order of branching and the actual order of appearances in the fossil record. In 95% of the examples he looked at, the two sets of data do not agree with one another. So in effect, what he did was he constructed a diagram like the one you see on the left, where you can predict that these groups should appear in the order 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Then you go to the rock layers and you find that those groups appear in an order 2, 3, 1, 5, 4, or something like that. So actually, when you begin to look more broadly at the data, it doesn't look quite so compelling, does it, as an argument for evolution. Final argument here under this heading, intermediate forms. These are organisms that must have developed as one group of organisms gave rise to another major group there must have been intermediate forms okay transitional forms that bridge those morphological gaps and evolutionary um, scientists point to examples Uh, Archaeopteryx is one of the classic examples Archaeopteryx found in Germany in the Solnhofen uh, sediments In many ways it has bird-like characteristics, it has asymmetrical flight feathers like those of a modern bird, but in other respects it has dinosaur-like features of its skeleton, (coughs) teeth. No modern bird has teeth in in its bill. Wing claws, long bony tail and so on. And Evolutionary scientists say this is exactly what we predict because it's thought that Birds evolved from a theropod dinosaur ancestor and so we'd expect that we would find in the fossil record organisms that have a combination of traits, dinosaur and bird-like traits. Another creature that you may not have heard of is this strange creature called Acanthostega found in Greenland. And uh, it again has a strange combination of characters. In some ways it's tetrapod-like, like like a four-footed Animal, it has legs and hands and feet with digits, although even then it's a bit weird because it has weird numbers of digits, it has eight digits, not five. But in other respects, it's fish like, it has external gills like a fish, it has fin rays on the tail, it has a lateral line for sensing in the water like a fish. So again, it's a strange mosaic combination of characters and evolutionary scientists say this is again what we expect we believe that fish gave rise to the first land animals the first terrestrial animals and here is a creature that's kind of halfway between a fish and a tetrapod again it seems when you look at some of these examples it seems a compelling argument until we realize that actually Mosaic forms like this, that combine traits of more than one group, are actually really rather common, much more common than you would imagine. And they're common not only in the fossil record, but even in the living world. Take, for example, the red panda. The red panda, there's been a debate for a long time in in biology. How should the red panda be classified? Because it, it combines traits from different groups, raccoons and bears. So how do, how do we classify What about the hoaxin, a bird in South America that shares traits with several different other groups of birds, all combined in this one, this one organism? And the problem here for evolution is that most of these mosaic forms that have these mosaic combinations of traits cannot be interpreted as evolutionary intermediates. Because they actually combine traits from the wrong groups, right? Not groups that are thought to be ancestor-descendant in relationship. So we can't interpret these mosaic forms as evolutionary intermediates. So again, it raises the question, are we correct to interpret those other mosaic forms in an evolutionary way? So all of these evolutionary arguments, when you begin to dig into them a little bit more, I think they have some significant problems but then thirdly I believe that creationism actually helps us to do good robust science and to come up with even better explanations and I want to turn here from biology to my own um, field which is geology and I want to give you an example of uh, a creationist research project that I've personally been involved in that I think shows illustrates this idea that we can actually do really good science and explain the data better than the conventional um, scientific explanations. If only we, you know, we found our thinking on on the scriptures. Uh, this particular project that I was involved in concerns uh, a rock unit that you find in the Grand Canyon in Arizona. It's called the Coconino Sandstone. You can see it forms these prominent cliffs in in the canyon. You can see it also that cream-coloured sort of ribbon of rock on the um, on the other side of the canyon there. Uh, I've been working with Dr. John Whitmore and other colleagues on on this sandstone for a number of years uh, to to basically do a a very in-depth field and lab investigation. Uh, This is what the Coconino sandstone looks like when you get close up. Uh, It has what we call cross-bedding. You see these inclined layers within the Coconino sandstone? These are called cross-beds. So within the layer of sandstone, there are these inclined layers. How do those inclined layers form? Well, it's thought that they form by the downcurrent migration of sand dunes. Okay, so the Coconino sandstone is basically fossilized sand dunes. Sand is transported up the back of a dune, it avalanches down the front face of the dune, and as the dune migrates, it builds up this series of inclined layers called crossbeds that represent the front face of the advancing dune so why were we so interested in studying this particular sandstone well there's a reason uh, we were sort of motivated by our creationist ideas to study this sandstone because here you see the stack of rock layers found in northern arizona and most creationists agree that these rocks were formed not over a timescale of hundreds of millions of years but rapidly during Noah's flood these are these are sedimentary layers that were deposited by the waters of Noah's flood and where is the Coconino sandstone the Coconino sandstone is right in the middle of this stack of rock layers And here's the problem. For a very long time, for for many, many decades, mainstream geologists have told us that the Coconino sandstone was deposited by sand dunes that accumulated in an ancient desert. It is an arid, wind-blown sand. You don't need to have a PhD in geology to realise that explaining a 300-foot-thick layer of desert sand in the middle of a global flood is a problem. So we wanted to study this sandstone. And the geologists put forward a number of arguments, which I'm not going to go through, uh, to argue that this, this is indeed a desert sandstone. And they seem to make, as we've already said, they seem to make a compelling argument I want to look at just a couple of these arguments, because we went through, in our research, we went through every single one of the arguments that has been put forward for the Coconino being a desert sandstone and examined them in detail, collected data to test each of these claims. We don't have time to go through all of them, but I want to look at a couple. I want to look at the vertebrate footprints, the trackways, the fossil trackways that we find in the Coconino, which have been argued as evidence that these were animals that were walking around in a desert environment. And then thirdly, uh, uh, secondly, I want to look at the uh, number three on this list, mud cracks at the base of the formation, um, as evidence of an arid environment. So we'll just look at those. Fossil footprints. The only fossils that we find in the Coconino sandstone basically are these um, trackways, vertebrate and invertebrate trackways. And this is what they look like. They're very well preserved. You can see the sole marks and even the the toe marks. You can count the numbers of toes. And uh, for maybe 70 years since Edwin McKee, a famous Grand Canyon geologist, first studied these tracks, um, published a monograph back in the 1930s, um, he argued that these were clearly the footprints of animals that were scurrying around on dry desert sand dunes. So one of uh, our colleagues, Dr. Leonard Brand, has actually been studying these tracks for a very long time. He first began to study them back in the 1970s, and he's published a number of papers in the mainstream scientific literature, not just in the creationist literature, but even in the mainstream literature. He did a very interesting study. He carefully examined 82 of the fossil trackways in Grand Canyon, and then he did experiments in the lab where he set up tanks with uh, sand dunes in them and he had experimental animals, little lizards and amphibians that were able to walk around and make footprints on the dunes in the lab. And he did this under a variety of conditions. He had them make tracks on completely dry sand, on sand that was simply moist, Sand that was completely saturated and then sand that was completely submerged below water. And he examined carefully the characteristics of the tracks that were made. And what he found is that of all of the experimental tracks, the closest match to the trackways found in the Coconino Sandstone were the ones made completely submerged underwater. The other kinds of tracks on dry sand and damp sand, even the wet sand tracks, did not match the tracks that were made in the Coconino Sandstone. He found some other interesting things. He found trackways in the Coconino Sandstone where the toes were pointing in one direction and the track was moving sideways. He found other trackways that appeared or disappeared abruptly without any apparent disturbance of the bedding surface. He argued that these can only be explained by animals that are buoyant in water. Okay? It's drifting with a current or it's being picked up by a current and dropped down again by a current. Another argument, the second argument that's been used for the Coconino sandstone being a dry desert environment concerns these cracks. Now, you may, uh, if you look carefully, you can see that you have this uh, blonde sort of Coconino sandstone, this sort of pale colored sand. Below it in Grand Canyon, we have this reddish rock formation called the Hermit Formation. And extending down into the Hermit Formation are cracks that are filled in with Coconino sand from above. And again, for a very long time, ever since the 30s, Scientists have argued that this is evidence of a dry, arid environment. The idea is that the hermit formation was laid down on a river floodplain that dried out under the baking heat of the sun. Now, you know what happens to mud when it dries out? It cracks. You get mud cracks that open up. And then as the wind blew these uh, desert dunes across this dry mud plain, the sand fell into the mud cracks and filled them in. This is how the data has been interpreted. So, again, we were interested to study these cracks. We examined them at multiple locations. We collected samples of rocks from the cracks, from the layers above the cracks from the hermit formation in order to study them in the lab. One of the things we found is that there actually isn't very much clay in the hermit formation. Not enough clay for this hermit formation to have cracked by desiccation under the sun. It's mostly sand. There isn't enough clay. Sand doesn't crack under the sun, but mud does. There isn't isn't enough mud in it. One of the other things we found is that as we mapped the size of these cracks across the Grand Canyon region, we found something very interesting. The biggest cracks, the widest and deepest cracks, are found along the Bright Angel Trail in the central part of Grand Canyon. And the mud cracks get smaller as you get further away from the Bright Angel Trail, whether you're going west or east or north, they get smaller and eventually disappear. We thought this is very odd. Why would this be? We realised that the Bright Angel Trail is the location of the biggest earthquake zone that cuts through the Grand Canyon. There is a huge earthquake, a fault, called the Bright Angel Fault in that location we began to realize these cracks have absolutely nothing to do with desiccation under the sun they are earthquake cracks they are tectonic in origin that's why they get smaller with distance from the fault they are tectonic cracks we published this in a in a mainstream journal in sedimentary geology we went through every one of these arguments every one of these claims We found that not a single one of the arguments supposedly proving that this was a desert actually stood up when we subjected it to the data. We also made a number of new discoveries that had never been made before in the Coconino Sandstone, also all of which supported the idea that this sandstone was deposited under water. So we actually believe that the Coconino Sandstone is good evidence for the global flood. We believe it was laid down as enormous underwater sand dunes, called sand waves. We actually can see sand waves in the oceans today, where you have strong currents and a lot of sand. Like here in Long Island Sound, we find these enormous sand waves being deposited. That's an 80-metre-long shipwreck for um, scale there. So we can do good science as biblical creationists. We can explain the data that we find. Finally, and very briefly, I believe that creationism is good biblical theology. What is the central message of Christianity? Well, we might sum it up in this very famous, perhaps the most famous verse of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible teaches that God sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners. But of course that begs a question in many people's minds. Why did Christ have to die on the cross in order to save sinners? And the Bible tells us, doesn't it? It tells us that Christ died on the cross in order to pay the penalty for sin. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And that's because the penalty for sin... Is death that's what the Bible says the wages of sin is death and this connection between sin and death is interwoven through the entire biblical narrative according to the Bible there was a time in history when there was no death death came into the world because of sin sin entered the world through that one man Adam and death through Sin, But the Bible tells us that death is an enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 26 says, The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And death is a defeated enemy. Because in his death and resurrection, Christ himself has conquered death. Death was not able to hold him. And because death is defeated... It is temporary. One day, when Christ returns, death will be abolished. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death. That's what the Bible says. That's the basis of the good news. The hope of the gospel. But think about the evolutionary story. If evolution is true... Death has always been around. Death cannot be regarded as an intruder into the creation, as something unnatural. It is not something that originated with human sin. It has always been around. That's what evolution means. Death has been around for hundreds of millions of years, long before there were people, if evolution is true. You can look at the fossil record and find evidence of sickness and disease, cancerous growths on bones, death and sickness and disease, if evolution is true, have been around for hundreds of millions of years. In fact, death is an integral part of the evolutionary process. You can't have evolution without death. It's about that struggle for survival, differential survival, that leads to the evolutionary process itself. So death, suffering, sickness, disease in evolutionary terms are all perfectly natural. They're just part of the package deal. There there is no reason if you're uh, an evolutionary minded person to get upset at the idea of death. It's natural. It's just how things are. But I want to suggest that that view of death undermines the whole of the Christian message because it renders Christ's death on the cross for sin utterly inexplicable. If death was present before the fall, the Bible's narrative of redemption does not make sense. Was Christ on the cross defeating an enemy that he himself created in the beginning and called very good? If we accept evolution and try to marry it with scripture, That, in effect, is the message we're left with. That's no message at all. And I believe that only creationism is compatible with traditional Christian theology. And it's only that that offers hope to people today. So, that's the end of my address. I believe that creationism provides better scientific explanations than evolution. I believe that it's the only view of origins that's consistent with traditional Christian theology theology.